Well, good morning, everyone. Um, as you all know, summertime is in full swing. It, it certainly feels like summer today. And uh, that inevitably means that many folks are on vacation, and that includes pastors. And for the deacons, occasionally that means that we have to call upon lay members of the congregation to provide for what it, we refer to as pulpit supply. So such is the case this morning as I find myself uh, standing behind this wonderful old pulpit. Now let me say up front that I have no formal training in biblical studies or theology or apologetics or anything else for that matter that might qualify me as a preacher. Therefore, the meditation that I will share this morning is simply an invitation to join me as I wrestle with questions about wisdom, discernment, and godly decision-making in the 21st century. But before we begin, let's take a moment to come before the Lord in prayer. So, so let's pray. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that apart from you, we can do nothing. And yet at the same time, we know that all things are possible through you who strengthens us. So Lord, I would pray that this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be aligned with your thoughts and your desire for our lives, and that we would leave this place today with whatever insights you would have us to receive. And in your name we pray, Lord Jesus, amen. Well, the specific challenge that I want to reflect on this morning can be summed up in the question, how can we grow in godly wisdom and discernment so that we can make God-honoring decisions in our day-to-day -day lives? And by extension, are there biblical principles that we can apply to our lives that will move us along a path towards greater wisdom, discernment, and godly decision-making? And to be honest, I need help here because on multiple planes, life in the 21st century has become exceedingly complex and the culture around us has changed profoundly in ways that force us to apply the principles of scripture in, in some very unfamiliar situations. And it seems to me that in many ways we've entered into unchartered territory. And I find myself often wrestling with questions such as, Lord, I don't know what to do in this situation. Please give me wisdom, show me what you would have me to do. Or, Lord, I sense that you may be calling me to move forward in this direction, but I'm, I'm not convinced that this is your voice that I'm hearing. Are you sure that you want me to go there? Please confirm your marching orders somehow and give me a sense of peace and joy to move forward. Or, Lord, I stepped out in faith because I thought it was you who was leading me, but now I'm wondering whether I, I got things wrong. I missed your call. Nothing seems to be working out. Father, should I cut my losses now and bail out, or would you have me persevere? Even though I can't see how this possibly can have a happy ending, what do I do? Lord, I'm, I'm beginning to panic. Well, over this past decade in particular, as I entered the final season of my career leading up to my retirement last month, after 37 years, I've experienced questions like these repeatedly, and I've often struggled to discern God's marching orders 
and to respond wisely, especially when decisions needed to be made that involve stepping way out of my comfort zone. Well, the good news is that the principles laid out in Scripture are trustworthy and unchanging, even amidst a world that seems to be spiraling out of control. So I invite you now to come alongside, join me, as I turn to a few passages of Scripture that have been instrumental in my own faith journey at this particularly latter season of my life. The primary text that we'll look at, and you probably want to open your pew Bibles um, to James chapter 1, but before we go there, I'd like to touch on our call to worship this morning. You'll recall that the call to worship included the much-loved verses 5 and 6 from Proverbs chapter 3, which reads as follows, and I'm going to use the NIV translation. You get nuances of meaning, meaning that are a little bit different with different translations, but in this particular case, I'm going to use NIV. And the NIV reads, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Now it was decades ago during what we used to call vacation Bible school that I first committed these verses to memory. During that particular summer VBS program, Pastor Peter Anderson Sr. taught the kids to sing those two verses to the tune of Row, Row, Row Your Boat. Peter, do you remember that? Because I, I do. I've never forgotten that, and I still hum the tune when I, when I recite these verses in my mind. It's a wonderful mnemonic device. Thank you. <laughs> and little did I know back then how profoundly these verses would shape my life thereafter, because in two simple sentences, they frame out a couple of profound principles that, that seem to underpin godly decision-making. Principle number one is that godly wisdom, discernment, decision-making are not things that I can accomplish on my own through the power of my intellect or my intuition. It is the Lord that makes my pastorate so that I can then make godly decisions. It's not me. Now, the implication of this is that my role in this process is to have the humility to trust God completely with all my heart. And frankly, giving up control of my decision-making apparatus and choosing not to lean on my own understanding so that God can make my pastorate does not come easy. I'm inclined not to be humble. I'd rather figure things out for myself. Thank you very much. And so this principle of humility and complete trust in God is one that I need to be reminded of constantly even as I wrestle with not knowing which path to take. Principle number two involves the phrase, in all your ways acknowledge him. Or in other words, in the, the post-resurrection world of the Christian, I believe that this is a call to acknowledge the lordship of Christ in all aspects of my life, which ultimately means that submission, the S word, and obedience are important ingredients here. They are they're necessary prerequisites in order for God to make my pastorate. Now the two preceding verses of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, which were also part of the call to worship, 
you know, seem in my, my sense to, to support and reinforce the second principle. Verses three and four in the NIV read, let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. So it seems to me that living in a posture of steadfast love and faithfulness to God is part of this process of acknowledging the Lordship of Christ in all aspects of my life and humbly trusting in the Lord with all of my heart so that God can make my path straight. All these things seem to fit together and, and it behooves me to be mindful of them. So please, please file these thoughts away for a few minutes while we turn our attention to the scripture reading from James chapter one. We're gonna focus on verses two through eight, which reads as follow, again in the NIV. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all that he does. Well, clearly, like the call to worship from Proverbs 3, this passage is dealing with seeking wisdom and discernment, and it's also about the importance of perseverance, which sounds a lot like this posture of steadfast love and faithfulness to God that Proverbs Three, uh, three seems to be framing out. But James also includes a couple of new features. First, he explicitly instructs us to ask for help. You know, don't be bashful here, James seems to be saying, and much more importantly, don't be prideful. We cannot do this on our own. So just ask God for help. But the passage also has something to say about the way we ask for wisdom. And this falls right in line with the exhortation in Proverbs 3 to trust in the Lord with all your heart. When we ask for wisdom, James says, we are to believe and not doubt, which effectively means that we are to trust the Lord in the Lord with all our heart. But James goes a step further than Proverbs 3 and essentially rebukes the one who doesn't trust in the Lord with all of one's heart. Now this is a bit sobering and it highlights the preeminent importance of believing and trusting in the Lord. Because according to James, as I read it, this is necessary, it is a prerequisite to accessing the wisdom of God. And James links this process of asking for wisdom and believing with becoming spiritually mature and complete through perseverance, which is the ultimate goal of walking this earth, to become spiritually mature. 
So in other words, the stakes seem to be very high here, and James seems to be warning us to listen up, listen up and take this very seriously. All right, let me try to summarize where we have come to at this point. I need to reiterate to myself all the time, where am I in, a, in an argument? So here's, here's the summary. When I am seeking to discern God's plan for my life, when I'm trying to discern his marching orders for my next assignment, or when I'm seeking God's wisdom as to how I should respond in a particularly vexing situation, there are certain principles of which I need to be mindful. First, I need to embrace humility, to accept that it will be God who makes my path straight, not me. God has to do the heavy lifting here, and I need to ask for God's help. Second, the way that I ask for God's help matters. I need to trust in the Lord with all my heart. I need to believe and not doubt. No matter how overwhelming or even hopeless the situation may seem, I need to trust and believe that he will make my path straight. And finally, all of this needs to happen within the context of a life that in all ways acknowledges God and submits to the Lordship of Christ. In other words, a life that is characterized by steadfast love and faithfulness to God. All right, sounds pretty straightforward. We can do this, can't we? You know, you, you follow these principles and God will give you wisdom generously and he will make your path straight, right? Part of me says yes, it, it actually is pretty simple and straightforward because I've seen it lived out in the lives of godly men and women over the years. There are two individuals that come to my mind immediately and they are John and Joan Went. John and Joan were a retired American couple who sensed a clear and compelling call to become missionaries to China by teaching English as a second language to college students. When they were on assignment in China, my wife Christina was a college student and became one of their students in their class. And John and Joan took Christina under their wings and eventually brought Christina to America where they financed her undergraduate degree program at Olivet Nazarene University in Illinois. And John and Joan had a crystal clear sense of God's marching orders on all of this and the stories that they had to tell about their missionary work in China and other work that they undertook in, in Haiti where they set up an orphanage and did some incredible things, stories of insurmountable challenges and the astonishing ways that God opened the doors nevertheless. I mean, they were breathtaking to listen to. And whenever the path forward was completely obscured and all hope was lost, John would just smile in his booming voice and say, Jesus, you do it. And sure enough, the Lord would faithfully do it. He'd make their path straight time and time again. And so the, for the past three decades, I have wanted to be like John and Joan because they lived out the principles of Proverbs chapter 3 and James chapter 1. And those principles proved to be trustworthy. And of course, we also find accounts of great heroes in the Bible, like Joshua, who exemplified a life, a life well-lived according to these same principles. And I don't have time to walk you through Joshua's life, but I, I, 
I encourage you to reread the book of Joshua when you get a chance. It is an amazing story of trusting in the Lord, living a life of steadfast love and faithfulness to God, hearing God's call clearly, obeying God's marching orders, and God making the path straight time and time again. That is the way I want my life to be. But when I look at the reality of my life, I see something quite different. Truth is, I often agonize trying to discern God's marching orders. A few moments ago, I, I mentioned a series of questions that see, keep seem to coming up. And I'm asking you to, to allow me to restate those questions because I find them so disturbing. Lord, I don't know what to do in this situation. Please give me the wisdom. Show me what you would have me to do. Or Lord, I, I sense you may be calling me to move forward in a particular direction. But is this your voice that I'm hearing? You sure you want me to go there? Please confirm your marching orders. Somehow give me a sense of peace and joy. Or Lord, I stepped out in faith. I thought it was you who was leading me and everything's falling apart. I don't know what to do. Should I bail out? Should I persevere? I don't see how this is gonna end. What do I do, Lord? What do I do? When I consider where I am today, it is very clear that I am not at the same place that John and Joan were in their so-called retirement years as missionaries, and certainly not at the same place that Joshua seems to have been throughout his adult life. So what's wrong with me? Well, if I start down that path of assuming that something is wrong with me, that inevitably leads to other troubling questions, such as, question number one, do I really trust in the Lord with all my heart? I mean, do I actually believe in the way that James instructs us to believe when I ask for wisdom? No. No, in the thick of things, I often have doubts. I have second thoughts. I have uncomfortable feelings in the pit of my stomach. Strike one. Question number two, am I humble enough to admit that I alone cannot make my path straight? The Lord has to be the one to make my path straight. No. In fact, I often wake up in the middle of the night, sometimes in a state of fear and panic when I realize that I am not able to think my way out of the situation at hand. I want to let go, but my pride keeps telling me, this is your problem, Paul. You're not stupid. Fix it. Think your way out of it and quit whining. You know, just do it. Be a Nike kind of guy. Strike two. What about acknowledging God in all my ways, submitting to the Lordship of Christ in all aspects of my life, living in steadfast love and faithfulness to God? Can I at least get this one right? No. No. The older I get, the more I am aware of sin in my life. No. Strike three. You're out, Paul. That is what the enemy whispers in my ear when I wake up in the middle of the night wondering if the Lord will ever make my path straight. And what I need to constantly remember, standing on the authority of Scripture, is that this whispering of the enemy is absolute rubbish. Let's go back to James chapter 1. James lays it out clearly that Christian maturity does not come easily. I mean, Ben spoke about this last Sunday. 
one doesn't instantaneously develop the capacity to trust in the Lord with all of one's heart, to acknowledge God in all of one's ways, to consistently and steadfastly live a life of love and faithfulness to God, and to petition the Lord in the posture of unshakable belief. These things don't just suddenly magically appear. Christian maturity takes hard work and it requires the testing of one's faith. It requires perseverance. And as James noted, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. Perseverance must finish its work. And that is why James can make this, this I mean, seemingly goofy, counterintuitive claim that we should consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds. That's not a suggestion, that's, a, that's an exclamation. Consider it pure joy. In other words, wrestling with trials of many kinds is a necessary prerequisite for Christian maturity. So we ought to plan on it. Shouldn't come as any surprise. And therefore, when the enemy whispers in my ear, that's strike three, Paul, you're out, you're a loser. You don't even belong in this league. Why are you even standing here, up here in front of all these folks? Pack it up, go home. I can respond on the, the authority of scripture rubbish. My Father in heaven has a bigger plan here, and you, my enemy, have no ability to change that. Checkmate. Indeed, I've been blessed to witness God's bigger plan over and over again for six decades now. His steadfast mercy and grace in my life through trials of many, many kinds. And, and one of the blessings of getting old, and there aren't too many of them, but this, this is one of them, and it's a big one, is that you begin to see how God has been working in your life, often quietly behind the scene, every step of the way to accomplish his bigger plan. Again, Ben talked about understanding a bigger plan last week. And that brings me in closing to Gideon. I am so glad that the book of Judges chapters 6 and 7 includes the account of Gideon because it's like holding up a mirror to my face and seeing myself. And the good news is that God did a truly astonishing work through Gideon despite Gideon. Now I don't have time to walk you verse by verse through Judges chapters 6 and 7. I encourage you to go back and, and take a, a look again. It's a wonderful account. But at least let me paraphrase some of the key elements that speak to me directly and deeply. In chapter six, we are introduced to Gideon and we learn that Gideon was timid. He was demoralized, he lacked confidence. Gideon was surrounded by sexual perversion and depravity. The cult of Asherah and Baal or Baal was notoriously sexually perverse. It already had a 2,000 year history of being entrenched in the culture, in the, in the geography of this, this part of the world. And this cult was deeply embedded in the Canaanite culture that surrounded the Israelites at the time and its tentacles had even penetrated Gideon's own community and even his family. That was a tough environment to occupy for one who served the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
When the angel of the Lord called upon Gideon to rise up and lead the Israelites, Gideon questioned whether this was even the voice of the Lord speaking to him. I mean, he bluntly asks for a confirmation, basically proof that this is your voice, Lord, that I'm hearing. When Gideon recognized that it was indeed the God of Israel who was speaking, he began to step out in faith with baby steps of obedience and God honored and protected him. But when the enormity of what God was asking him to do settled in, Gideon began to have second thoughts. He questioned God's marching orders, not once but twice, by laying out fleeces and asking God to provide definitive signs for his marching orders. And when I, when I ponder this account of Gideon, I find myself nodding my head in understanding because I've been there, I get it. I get it. Then in chapter 7, we begin to see God's bigger plan, that God was not simply asking Gideon to lead the entire Israelite army into battle, as he had instructed Joshua to do time and time again. But instead, God essentially asked Gideon to lead a suicide mission, consisting of a mere 300 men against the vast army of the Midianites. I mean, there was no way that this could have a happy ending. And yet in the end, Gideon was able to step up to the plate and hit a grand slam with a victory that was legendary among the Israelites. And it was a victory that could only have been orchestrated by the God of Israel. And of course, that was God's bigger plan. Bottom line, if God can use even Gideon to accomplish his plan and purpose, he can use even me, even you. And if you find yourself in a season of life where you're struggling to discern God's bigger plan, as I am this very morning with two specific situations in my own life, then I encourage you to join me and let's, let's persevere together. You are not alone, we are not alone. We're in very good company. So let's strap on our seatbelts, turn the keys over to our Heavenly Father, and He will do the rest. It's as simple and challenging as that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we end this morning precisely where we began, acknowledging that apart from You, we can do nothing. And yet at the same time, we know that all things are possible through you who strengthens us. Lord, strengthen us to be attentive to your voice, to persevere through trials of many kinds, and to rejoice in the bigger plan that you are orchestrating in the lives of each one of us here today. And in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.